0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Science Behind Learning series, and welcome to, I guess, the first official episode. Um, today, we're going to explore the science behind memory, and I thought this was a really good place to start because it's where I started with my research. So, I don't think I actually said this in my introduction, but I was actually able to take a course through, I think it's called edX. Um, and I took the science behind learning by the Columbia Teachers College, I think, I believe. Like, I learned a lot. And I, I mean, I didn't actually take the course because it's an expired course. So I just kind of went through and watched all the videos. But I came out of it with a lot of really good knowledge. And they provided me with a lot of really useful diagrams. I can't actually show you, obviously, a diagram through your years. But the main points of this multi-store model of memory that I want to focus on are the four kind of stages of memory that I'm going to talk about. So first we have sensory input. So images on a chalkboard, a notification on a phone, someone talking to you, Then we look into sensory memory. Sensory memory leads to working memory, and working memory leads to long-term memory. And the most important thing to note that I think is very apparent on this diagram is that some of the stimuli or information is lost at each stage of memory. So for sensory memory, working memory, and long-term memory, a significant amount of information is lost as the stimuli moves through each stage. The other thing that I wanted to mention before I started going over the basic function of memory was that the majority of the research that I was doing focuses on explicit learning. So there's two types of learning, implicit and explicit. Explicit is learning that develops consciously, so it's like classroom learning, whereas implicit learning develops unconsciously. So when someone learns their first language, when you learn like unwritten social norms, things like that. I think that's all of the background information that I wanted to share with you. So I guess we can start with this kind of scenario idea. I thought it was easier to walk you through the function of memory by kind of actually walking you through it rather than just giving you a ton of terms and what everything does. So if you just imagine a student sitting in their seat in the classroom, right? They're picking up environmental stimuli. So these stimuli include the teacher's voice, maybe images on the whiteboard, maybe a slideshow that's been projected in the front of the class, maybe their peer is talking to them, maybe their phone has lit up with a notification. These are all different stimuli that have then traveled to their sensory registers. So all the stimuli travels to the sensory registers and remains in there only for a fraction of a second. If the student continues to pay attention to a given stimuli, so if they pick up their phone and zero in on the notification on their screen, if they turn and look at the slideshow and begin to actively participate in the notes that are being given, the information is then transferred to their short-term memory. The most important thing about short-term memory, which we're going to go more in depth on short-term memory in the next episode, but the most important thing to know is that two people in the same sensory environment may have completely different experiences or levels of retention based on the attention that they're giving a given stimuli. So if one student, I mean, I think this is pretty self-explanatory, but if one student is choosing to focus on a phone or a doodle on their notebook, not that these things are necessarily bad, but if they're focusing on that and not on something that's happening on the board, they're obviously going to retain more information from the activities that they're doing outside of this lesson versus the lesson itself, whereas if a different student is just actively participating in the conversation, they're going to retain a lot more of the same exact lesson given at the same exact time. I keep I have like I have like notes for this and I keep turning and looking at a wall instead of looking at this and then I lose my place so say we look at the student that has been actively participating in the notes they are generating a large level of retention a significant amount of the stimuli has traveled into their sensory registers and then into their short-term memory if they are then given the opportunity to actively process the given information so if an interaction between short-term and long-term memory is formed and therefore they are allowed to engage in cognitive processing then we get into the development and storage of long-term memory so a student can pay attention we can have that student that's actively participating in the discussion And if they're not given the ability to actively process the information, they may not actually form new and usable memories. Their working memory must also have enough capacity to process this information, which is where cognitive load comes in. I don't really want to go into detail on cognitive load just yet because that is a big part of the next episode. But in general, I think the best example I can give is... If something happens before the student steps into this classroom, so if they have just like gotten into a fight with their friend, or just gotten some bad news, or they're really excited for the game after school and that's all they can think about, a significant amount of their memory is being used to process that information. So they're then left with a smaller portion of their memory to use in class, which then obviously generates a lower level of retention. So another example that I wanted to give because this actually was I mean I I changed the wording a bit because I didn't want to copy it but the course that I took on the science behind learning explained the impact of connecting prior knowledge really well using this kind of hypothetical question scenario so I wanted to kind of present that to you the key to sustainable learning and this is connecting prior knowledge so I'm going to give you two sets of questions set one says what, com- what comes to mind when I say the word red? What was the last time you wore something red? What is your favorite red food? Set two says, how many letters does red have? How many vowels? And can you spell red backwards? If next week I asked you what word I had mentioned, you are much more likely to remember the word red if I had asked you specifically set one compared to if I had asked you only set two. This is because set two required a shallow sense of processing, which is mostly devoid of reasoning and context, while set one required a deeper level of processing. So as I asked you when was the last time you wore something red, your brain began to flip between working and long-term memory, connecting the new piece of information, the word red, to the existing information in your memory, such as your past outfits. This active processing is also known as elaborative elaborate elaborative I can't speak elaborative rehearsal or thinking to learn which is much easier to say so I think we're just going to stick with thinking to learn for future. Um, and this is the key to creating memories. I think the major takeaway that I wanted to present in this episode was that learning happens more readily and permanently when there's a connection between new and prior knowledge. So the more connections between working and long-term memory we can create in the classroom, the more likely this information will stick long-term. I've noticed this a lot in my AP Lang class, the act of repetition and of connecting previous activities to new activities. So one of my assignments for my TA position is to fill out a lesson plan for every class. So obviously it has like different sections. It has like the students will be able to thing and the subject of the lesson It has the activities and the assessments or homework. But we also have a section in there that's titled prior knowledge. And so in that section, I have to go back and think about what they've learned previously that is aiding them in this new information. I think the most relevant example I can come up with now about connecting new information is probably this lesson that I'm, I've i designed for the end of this week, where the students are going to look at a podcast that they listen to as kind of a summer assignment. We finished it in term one, but we're going to go back to it. Um, and we're going to look at the impact of structure on an author's purpose. So they're going to actually cut out all of the episodes in this series and order them and then talk about why Koenig is the author. It's, it's the podcast serial, so they're going to talk about why Koenig chose to present the information in this order and how that affects their purpose. They're then going to reorder the episodes in the sequence that they believe better achieves her purpose and defend why this is So, So this information is then going to be connected to the activity that they did today, this morning. They annotated a speech, I believe it's by Claire Booth Luce, and her speech was the introduction to something, I don't remember quite what it was, but the point of those annotations was how does the structure of her introduction best achieve this purpose. So do you see how they're kind of flipping back and forth between prior knowledge and new knowledge? And now they have this really strong skill of rhetorical analysis and specifically using structure as a tool for rhetorical analysis. I've also found that my research has been super helpful in my classes in general, so I'm taking AP Calc BC this year, and that's obviously a difficult class. It has a lot of information in it, and we have to take a, this major test at the end of the year. And honestly, like, I mean, it's whatever. If I take the test and I don't pass, like, I've taken this really interesting class and I've learned a lot and whatever. But it would be nice to like get the credit for taking an entire year of AP Calc BC. Um. And one of the learning strategies that I have developed as a result of my research is called space practice. Um, and I don't really want to get into it too much because that is the third episode. But basically, I f- figured out that because the brain works in this way, studying in, for smaller amounts of time over a longer duration of time is much more sustainable than studying like the night before. So obviously I've had teachers that have told me like don't study the night before a test. That's such a bad idea, but no one has actually sat down and said this is how your memory works, this is why you have an incredibly low level of retention if you cram it all in the night before the test, and this is what you can do in order to increase your chances of remembering things long term, especially for AP classes because we're looking to like pass the test at the end of the year. I mean all classes are looking for long term retention, but Especially in APs, like this is a group of students that I think would benefit really significantly from understanding learning strategies and we just don't teach it in school. So that was another little thought that came up um, in my brain while I was talking about this, but I do think that I have talked for long enough. I'm trying to keep these um, relatively short, maybe for your enjoyment, maybe because it takes me a long time to upload them and my laptop doesn't have that much space. But either way, I appreciate that you came to learn and I hope you're having a really great day and I will see you in the next episode.